Well, good morning, church. Everyone hear me all right with the microphone? Good, Scott? Okay. Uh, well, good morning again. I'm uh, really blessed and excited uh, to be here with you this morning to share God's Word together. Uh, and if you do have your Bibles, please open them to Genesis chapter 1. And we'll be reading from verses 26 to 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise You and thank You, Lord, that You are our Creator. We thank You, Lord, that not only did You create us in Your image, but even before You made us, You had a plan for us, a plan to save us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we open Your Word today, please pray that You prepare our hearts to receive the truth of Your Word, and we will learn to apply it in our lives. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, church, as many of you know, I'm not originally from New Bern. Um, I moved here about three years ago with my wife uh, when we got orders to Cherry Point. Um, but it's actually not my first time living here. I lived here about seven years ago as well uh, during another tour. And when I lived here then, I lived right downtown, uh, just a couple blocks away on Middle Street. And I fell in love with this town almost immediately uh, because of all the history that's here. Um, and, you know, I-, I love history. It's a passion of mine. I studied it in college. Um, and one of the things that I love then and still love now about New Bern is the history. And one of the really cool and unique things about it is you don't even need to do a lot of research. You just need to walk around town because we have all the signs and placards everywhere that tell you about what happened. Uh, you know, just right down the street, uh, the first provincial congress met for three days in 1774. And the stately house, uh, just a couple blocks that way, George Washington visited twice in 1791. Uh, Pepsi was uh, created here in a pharmacy right across the street from where I used to live. Um, and... You know, I understand maybe not everyone may find those particular things interesting, but I believe the fact is for most of us, the things, people, and places that matter to us, they really begin to resonate when we can attach something real and tangible to it. You know, it's one thing to hear a story or even to learn about a person, but it's another thing entirely to learn that that story or that that person was true, that that person really lived. And we as a culture really have a thirst for that, don't we? I mean, how many TV shows and movies do you hear about these days that are based on real, actual events? I mean, how many TV shows are reality TV shows, right? Uh, and, and the reason that events and people and places that are real and are historical resonate more with us in stories of fiction is because they really happened. They're not just good stories. Uh, you know, I mean, we can read a, a good book or watch a good television or, or show or a movie and think, wow, what a character, what a story. I can identify with that. But it's another thing entirely to learn about someone like George Washington, a man who actually lived, not just a character in a story, but someone in history. And church, the same principle holds true to Scripture. We don't just believe that Christ is the Son of God who came to live and die and be raised from the dead for our sins because it sounds good or because it's a really good story. I mean, the Gospel is a great story, but it also really happened. And that's what's amazing about it. And, 
you know, even the most critical scholars don't deny that a man named Jesus lived, and that he had a large following, and that he lived in first century Palestine. You know, uh, they may deny the miracles and the supernatural element, uh, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees did uh, in Jesus' day, but, you know, we know critically that Jesus was a real man. And the same is true for many other people in the Bible. I mean, for instance, the evidence supporting Paul, not only that he existed, but that he wrote Romans, is so overwhelming that one scholar said there's not a credible New Testament scholar that would argue that Paul did not write Romans. Uh, And the same can be said of Peter and Solomon and David and so on. Yet, you may have noticed that some, even some Christians, do not take the same approach to some parts of the Old Testament, specifically Genesis and in particular the creation account. In fact, many, many Christians do not even believe that the Genesis creation account, along with some parts of the Old Testament, are historical at all. One Christian scholar who's written many books on Genesis actually said that real history in the Bible begins roughly around Genesis 12 with Abraham. Now, why is this? Why are Christians basically picking and choosing which parts of the Bible that they want to believe are historical and truthful? Why do some Christians have no problem believing that Jesus turned water into wine or that he raised people from the dead or that he healed cripples and those that were diseased instantly or that he fed the 5,000 or that he brought Lazarus back to life but we somehow have a problem accepting that Adam was a real person or that Noah and the flood really happened? Well, I think the obvious answer is that the popular scientific arguments today would appear to disprove the Genesis creation account. And these arguments have become so proliferated that a lot of people, including some Christian scholars, have even adopted them as their own personal belief and as a result are forced to adopt a non-literal approach to Genesis, a non-historical approach to the creation account. Now, There's a lot of things we can discuss here today regarding this issue. We can talk about the method of God's creation, which Pastor Aaron talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, We can talk about uh, the days of creation, the time of creation. We can talk about evolution or the age of the earth. But Pastor Scott gave me one Sunday, so uh, we're going to talk about one crucial truth, uh, truth from Scripture mentioned in this passage, and that is why it matters that Adam was a real historical man. And I put it this way because, you know, Many Christians, I believe, when they come to difficult parts of Scripture, uh, they may think to themselves, well, you know, this is controversial and I don't want to argue about it. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if, if Adam, was, and Adam and Eve were real or if Noah was real, if there really was an exodus or if Eden was a real place. They say, you know, these, these are just non-critical or, or ancillary issues. In church... Let me tell you, it, it does matter that Jesus died for us. That is the foundation of our faith as Christians. But know this, everything in God's Word matters. Everything matters. And never let yourself think that something in God's Word is not important. What we need to be asking ourselves is, why did God see fit to reveal this to us? Why did He see fit to reveal this to me? And let me tell you, it matters that Adam was a historical man. He wasn't just some archetype or some mythical character. And even though, you know, I would I would venture to guess that most people here this morning already believe that, hopefully today, at at a minimum, we can understand the reasons why that's so important, if anything, so that when you're talking to other people, you can explain that. And you know, when I think about this, I think about our nieces, you know, and they're you know about three and five years old, and they they get so excited when we talk about Christmas and how it's Jesus' birthday, and how that's actually a real thing that they can celebrate. But, and when we talk about the other great stories of the New Testament and how those things really happened, but yet 
Sometimes I think people can find themselves when they talk about Noah and the flood or about the creation in Genesis, maybe treating it like it's some kind of fairy tale, like Beauty and the Beast. But we should be getting just as excited and just as little about these parts of the Bible as we do talking about Jesus in the New Testament. Because this is a real historical event. So with that, let's dive into our first point today and why, why is it important that Adam was a historical person? And the first reason in your outline is that it proves God created with a purpose. It's significant that Adam was a historical man because it proves God created with purpose. Now, you know, if you know me, uh, you know I love watches. Um, I, I got it from my father. He's, he always collected watches, and I love them. And, and, you know, one of the things I love about watches are mechanical watches that you have to wind, and then you've got to set the time, and then all the little intricate pieces in there have to work perfectly. And, you know, when a watchmaker spends, you know, a year or two years making a watch, every little jewel and every little gear that's in that watch is made with a purpose. He didn't just randomly find a couple pieces of parts that were laying around and throw them together. Like he manufactured and, and, and built those pieces for a purpose so that the watch functions like it's supposed to, so that I can keep time and know that I'm not going over and keeping us from getting to lunch, right? So, God, And God is the same way when he made man, when he made creation, he created with a purpose. And so first of all, as we look at this passage, you know, I really believe that if we're going to take Scripture seriously, we need to take seriously what it says. So let's look at what it says. And here again, we see that both God created and we understand, and we're going to see the reason why he created, what his purpose was. So before we continue, let's talk about the context of where we are, because I'm kind of jumping in the middle. So we're in day six of creation, okay? So prior to this, uh, God has created the living creatures. He's created uh, cattle and the creeping things and the beasts of the earth. That was also done on day six. And before that, on the other days, he's created the heavens and the earth. He created the light and the dark, the land and the sea. Uh, he's created uh, the vegetation and the sea creatures. He's, cre- he's created now the land animals. And so the last thing he's going to create on day six is humanity. It's the high crowning point of his creation. And so, and let's be clear, when it says that he, let's create man in our image, he's talking about humanity here, not just Adam. Okay, It's, it's male and female, Adam and Eve. That's what he's talking about here. But notice in, your, in the text, there's a unique way that it's described. It says, let us make man. Right? And, and if, if you remember from when Pastor Aaron uh, spoke a, f- a few weeks ago, or even if you're, just, you're familiar with this narrative, up until this point, when God creates, he does so with, this, with the phrase, let there be. He says, let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let the waters be gathered. But here he says, let us make and now the Hebrew form of let there be, that's an impersonal form of the Hebrew verb. But here, where we see let us make, God gets intimately involved because that formation, that's a personal form of the verb. And what this is showing us is the personal level of involvement to a different level that God has in the creation of humanity. This is one of the things this word formation tells us when God says let us make. But again, you might say, well, okay, why is it plural? Why does it say let us make, right? Well, first, these plural forms, along with showing us the personal involvement of Christ, they give us a glimpse of the Trinity. Right here in the beginning of the Bible, we get a glimpse of the Trinity. And we know that God is a triune God of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But here, we actually get one of the glimpses of that plurality of the triune head at the beginning of the Bible. And remember, God, when he created the universe, Christ was there. I mean, if we read this in uh, John chapter 1, where it says, uh, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. 
And similarly, Paul says in Colossians, verse 17, about Christ, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we know from the New Testament that Christ was present. But here we get a glimpse of that, with this, the, the, the plurality of the triune character of God. All right, so what does this have to do with, with God's intimate involvement in creation? Well, again, this, this shift in the text is because it's showing how God made humanity. And it's right here, in the image of God, in God's likeness. And so, you know, we as Christians know that we're made in the image of God, but, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're, we resemble him? Is this like a physical image? Well, no. I mean, first of all, we know that uh, from Scripture that God is a spiritual being, is not a physical being. I mean, places like John uh, chapter 4, verse 24, and Isaiah 31, we, know, we, we learn that God is a spirit. And furthermore, I mean, think about this logically. If, if our being made in the likeness of God was a physical representation, does that mean that God has organs? That the Holy Spirit has hair? Um, I mean, you know, these are kind of silly questions, but they demonstrate the point that our likeness uh, is referring not just to appearance. And uh, one commentator said it this way, our anatomy and physiology is demanded by our terrestrial habitat and quite inappropriate for one who inhabits eternity. All right, so what does it mean then to be made in the likeness of God? Well, first of all, it demonstrates our unique relation to God compared to the rest of the created universe. Remember, of all of creation, this is where God gets personal. Only humanity is made in the image of God. And only humanity can express certain qualities that God possesses, things like emotion, can have reason, can communicate, understand morality, can possess intellect and creativity to appreciate beauty. I mean, we're self-aware. This is what separates us from the rest of creation, what separates us from the animals. Now, yes, animals are conscious, but they're not self-conscious. They're not self-aware. You know, I think about, like, my wife and I, we just got a dog, right? And she's conscious. Like, she's alive, but she doesn't know that she's a dog. You know, like, she, she reacts to things around her, but she's not aware that she's reacting. You can't have a conversation with her. I mean, you can talk to the dog, but the dog is not going to intellectually or communicatively respond Right? And that's the difference of all creation. Only humanity expresses these unique qualities. And you might notice that it says in the image of God and in the likeness of God. And just know that in the Hebrew, those are, those are literally synonyms uh, here. And really what we want to indicate is that we possess these same kind of uh, intellectual, emotive, spiritual qualities that God has given uh, to humanity. All right, so what else? Well, the likeness of God is also expressed in that God created humanity as male and female to express his plurality. Remember, God is a triune God. He's a relational being. And this is demonstrated when he said the very fact that he's personally created humanity as male and female. Right? So this fundamental relationship of marriage, that's important. Why is it so important? Because the unity of husband and wife demonstrates the oneness of the triune God. And it's a fundamental human relationship that, again, reflects that unity of God. And another important, very, very important element of being made in the likeness of God is that for Adam and Eve, at least originally, they were also without sin. They were made in the image of God and that they were without sin. And this is crucial because it shows that God created humanity to truly be like him, without sin. Now, we know that we messed it up, right? We sinned. Uh, sin has, it has entered the world. But this also points to God's grand plan for redemption in Christ who restores us to the state of righteousness that he originally intended for us. Now, hold on to that. We're going we're gonna to come back to it later. Uh, but... You know, we're kind of just scratching the surface on what it main, means to be made in the likeness of God, but it's important to kind of have that basic understanding, I think, before we continue. All right, so that's one, one part of his purpose. 
to create us in his image. But he also had a purpose for humanity compared to the rest of creation. And we see this in the second part of verse 26. We're supposed to have dominion, right? It says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and of the, the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here we see not only did God create us to be an expression of his likeness, but we have a unique relation in that we are elevated above the rest of God's creation to be his representative ruler over his creation. You see, God is ruler over everything. He made it. It's his. But his plan and purpose for us was to be his representative here on creation as ruler. So not only is humanity separated through our uniqueness, but we're also elevated through God's purpose. And just in case, you know, you missed it, again, what I love about the Bible is the Bible repeats stuff. Verse 27, right, it says it three more times. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's almost uh, like a little poem here at the beginning of Genesis explaining the purpose of God's creation. And And so we see here these two verses that God created humanity with a purpose, to be made in his likeness and to express his relational and his moral and spiritual qualities and to be his representatives as rulers over creation. Now again, God created us with this amazing purpose. We did our best to screw it up, right? How? Through sin. God created all of this for us, but instead we chose sin. This is another wonderful part of God's plan, is that God had a plan to save us even before he created us. And Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So you see, church, God always had a purpose and a plan for us. He created with a purpose. And this is a truth that is present all throughout Scripture. And that brings us to our next point on your outline, that the rest of Scripture testifies to God's purpose in creation. Scripture testifies to God's purpose in creation. All right, so we've seen here that God had a purpose for his creation of humanity, of Adam. However, if Adam was not a real person, then what happens to God's wonderful purpose for humanity as expressed here in Genesis? Is that also not real? If Adam is not real, can you have the truth on the one hand of being made in the likeness of God, but on the other hand, the one who that likeness was made into is a fiction? I mean, some will say, well, the text demonstrates truth in regards to us being, us being humanity, uh, being created in the likeness of God, but Adam was not a real person. Basically, they want to pick and choose what truths they want to pull from this passage. Well, if this were true, we would expect to find some evidence supporting that, right? So let's look at the rest of Scripture. So if Adam was not a real historical person, if this was just some mythical narrative from the ancient Near East, then certainly we would have some indication of that in the rest of Scripture, right? Well, wrong. <laughs> You do not see that in the rest of the Bible. In fact, what we do see is that when the Bible refers to Adam, every biblical author continually does so with the understanding that he was a historical man. So we're going to do a quick little survey here, so feel free to follow along. I'm going to be moving maybe a little fast, but if you fast forward a couple chapters of Genesis chapter 5, we see another reference to God creating Adam in his own image. And then we get more information about Adam. We find out that he lived 130 years, and then he had another son. And then he continued to live, and then he died. And then we find a detailed genealogy that traces Adam all the way to Noah in verse 32. And then if you flip forward again to chapter 10, that genealogy picks up 
and it traces Noah and his descendants all the way down to Abram, or as we know better, Abraham. So why are these genealogies important? Well, first of all, they trace the origins of humanity all the way back to Adam. That's important for the first reason. They show a linear progression of God's creative purpose that began with Adam, and it traces that through his descendants. And second, these genealogies demonstrate that the intent of the writer was to connect Adam to real people. There's no indication from the context here that the author of Genesis did not consider Adam to have been a real person. And in fact, he goes to great lengths to trace his descendants through history. And this supports our understanding of Adam as a real person. And you might say, okay, well, this is just Genesis, but what about the rest of the Bible? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, when Moses is giving a summary of God's creative work, he references this passage at the moment at when God created humanity, male and female. Also, Hosea talks about Adam. It says that Israel, in chapter 6 of Hosea, was just like Adam and that Adam sinned, and Israel also sinned and broke their covenant with God. And if you go to First Chronicles, we get another genealogy that traces Adam all the way to Abraham and then to Jacob and then to David. And, and these records continue into the New Testament. Luke gives us a genealogy that goes from Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam. And Paul, when he spoke to the Greeks in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he said that God made from one man every nation of mankind to love on all the face of the earth. And Paul also said in Romans 5, verse 14, that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even on those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And perhaps most clearly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, and so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. Furthermore, Christ himself quotes Genesis in a reference to Adam when responding to the Pharisees. And we see this in Matthew 19, and it's also paralleled in Mark chapter 10, when he declares, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And if that's not enough, Christ credits Moses as a reliable author when he says in John chapter 5, starting in verse 46, For if you believed Moses you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So now here, here's a counter-argument. Some critics will tell you, yes, the biblical writers did believe that Adam was a real person and the Genesis account was historical, but this was only because they didn't know any better. They will basically argue that God accommodated his revelation, that's the word I'd like to use, to the primitive and ancient understanding of the first century. Effectively, they were saying that these arguments claim that God allowed the biblical authors to think Adam was historical, even though he wasn't. Now, church, this is problematic for a lot of reasons. First of all, it doesn't give credit to the original audience that it would take a 21st century mind to understand the creative purposes of God. Second of all, it brings the inerrancy of Scripture into the equation as, as a big issue. And furthermore, Christ himself references this account several times. And so... Well, some authors would say, well, yes, but Christ as God just accommodated his view to a first century understanding. So what they're literally saying is Christ just went along with what they thought was right. But does that sound like the Jesus Christ of Scripture? Just going along with popular opinion and popular belief? Not at all. Church, these arguments don't work. And I'll tell you why. Because if Christ accommodated his message, if God accommodated his message, that means at best he's an ineffective communicator or at worst he's a liar. And if we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, we know that this is just not true. This is not supported in Scripture. And church, we know and we believe that the New Testament is true. And if the New Testament 
references the Old Testament as true, then logically we have to believe that as well. It is one unified and complete Word of God. So you see that throughout the Bible, the authors of Scripture do refer to Adam and to creation as historical. Even Christ affirms the reliability of this account. So there's just nothing within the context of this passage or Scripture to support reading this anything other as a historical event, particularly when we think about the fact that the other biblical writers did so themselves. Adam was a real person. He lived. He died. And the events of his life, as recorded in the Bible, need to be understood as real. And that last point I just said is crucial, and it brings us to our next point in your outline, that without a historical Adam, there is no original sin. Without a historical Adam, there is no original sin. Now again, we've been looking at the creation of humanity and exploring the different ways that Scripture testifies to that passage. And again, the reason that we need to understand that Adam was not just some character from myth or some archetype is that it means that if he was, everything that is recorded in Scripture about him is also therefore just some kind of a myth, or some kind of a legend. And that includes the fall. Again, I'll say that one more time. If Adam was not a real historical man, then original sin did not happen. Or at least it didn't happen the way the Bible records it. And again, this is a problem because it, talk, it touches on the inerrancy of Scripture, which we just talked about a moment ago. All right, so why is this important? Well, the, it's important because the Bible tells us repeatedly that sin entered the world through one man, through Adam. And we looked at how the original state of humanity was sinless, made in the image of God. But yet, the moment that Adam and Eve partook of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became sinners. That was the instant that sin entered the world. And as a result of that, it had consequences for the rest of humanity. Because the entire world inherited the sin of Adam. And again, the Bible is clear on this. Psalm 51 states, uh, in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in Psalm 51 it states, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Right? This tells us that through the act of procreation we literally inherit the sin of our parents. And if our, we are the descendants of Adam, then therefore we inherit the sin of Adam. We all sin because we are sinners, and we are sinners because we inherited it from Adam. And Paul says this again in Romans 5, verse 12, where he explains this. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And Paul goes on to say in verse 17, Because of one man's trespass, trespass death reigned through that one man, that one man being Adam. And in 1 Corinthians 15:21, Paul again says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also a resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So we repeatedly see here, church, that through this one sin, this one sin that Adam committed in the garden, that the world was impacted throughout history because we're the descendants of Adam. So if you want to argue that Adam wasn't real, then it begs the question, when did original sin happen? When did sin enter the world? And if all these passages in Scripture cite Genesis as being true, if they're wrong, then does that mean that we can't rely on those parts of the Scripture as well? I mean, there are big consequences here. I mean, so is it wrong that sin didn't enter the world with Adam or that sin didn't enter the world the way the Bible describes it or both? I mean, we don't know. You know, and if we bear God's image and Adam wasn't real, sin isn't part of God's image, so when did it enter? We don't know. So think about this, church. God's plan for redemption is required because of our sinful nature. God needs to save us because we are sinners and are incapable of saving ourselves. That's why Christ came to save us. The whole reason that Christ came 
was because of the consequences of this one moment that reverberated throughout human history. But if Adam was not historical, then this moment of original sin as recorded in Scripture didn't happen. So we can't have it both ways. So we either have to have Adam and the act of his original sin, or you can't have it. And the clear reading of the Bible tells us why Christ came, to redeem us from sin that entered at the moment that Adam committed original sin. But if you remove a historical Adam from that equation, then the purpose of Christ's coming becomes a mystery, doesn't it? And so you see, the historical issue of Adam is crucial to the message of the gospel because Adam provides the reason why Christ was required to come into the world and to save us. And this is what we've been looking at with Pastor Scott as we go through Romans, right? I mean, we are a depraved, sinful people. We need Christ to save us. He is the only way. You know, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we all know this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by the grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And later in in chapter 8, Paul says again, starting in verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So church, we know the answer to why Christ came. Christ came to save us because we're sinners and we need a Savior. This is the fundamental message of the gospel. But we cannot forget that the moment we as humans became inherently sinful was the moment of the fall and the moment of the original sin. And this is the instant that sin entered the world. And if we remove Adam, we remove that instant. And therefore, you fundamentally remove the reason that we need Christ to save us. And finally, that brings us to our last point this morning. That Christ makes us righteous as the second Adam. Christ makes us righteous as the second Adam. And this is, this is wonderful. This is amazing. I mean, this is really what brings it full circle for us and just demonstrates the unifying and glorious purpose of God's plan. This is, this is remarkable because, you see, sin entered the world through one man. Because of the act of one man, all of us became sinners. However, God had a plan to bring redemption through one, Jesus Christ. And everything that happened as a result of Adam, of original sin, is overcome. And it's paid for through Jesus Christ. And Scripture, again, is abundantly clear on this. Paul spells it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 21, where, again, we, we just looked at this verse. He says, For as by a man came death, and by a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And in Romans uh, chapter 5, Paul says in verse 15, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. So again, sin entered the world through one one man, the first man, the first Adam, but we know that the eternal life and redemption has come through the grace of God through one man, Jesus Christ. And this is really the wonderful gift of salvation, that we were dead in sin because of one man, but because of Christ, we're now made alive. So yes, Adam was a real man. He committed real sin, an event that echoed throughout real history. Yet God in his infinite grace and love, sent Christ to redeem us and make us righteous, to restore us to the state that God intended us to be. And that's really what it means for Christ to be the second Adam. The first Adam brought death. Christ, the second Adam, brings us eternal life. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, verse 15:45. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Christ makes us righteous. He redeems us, gives us life eternal life as the second Adam. 
His life, death, and resurrection overcame sin for all. Sin that entered the world through a historical Adam who really lived. So if we take away that, we fundamentally take away the reason that Christ came to make us righteous. Church, I hope that we can now see on a deeper level why it matters that Christ, that, that Adam was a real person and what it has to do regarding our state as sinners and regarding our redemption in Christ. So as we close today, I would encourage you to remember and to be uh, bold when you're sharing these parts of the Scripture with others, with not only with other Christians, but specifically with non-believers who may doubt or even be skeptical of these parts of the Bible. And we don't need to compromise or to try to accommodate these parts of Scripture. And when you do feel maybe distressed or it's difficult to share these parts of the Word, I would encourage you to remember the words of Charles Spurgeon who talked about the quote-unquote need to defend the Gospel as opposed to sharing it. Where He said, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. That is the truth and the power of Scripture, church. So now, church, we're going to have a moment uh, for invitation. And perhaps uh, for the first time today, you have realized that you are a sinner and you need Christ to come into your life to forgive you of your sins. And if so, I'll be down front and I would love to pray with you. Or uh, perhaps you want to come to rededicate your life or you just feel left to pray. And if so, uh, again, I'll be down front along with uh, Mr. Jim Jackson, the chairman of Deacons, and we would love to pray with you. So again, if you would please bow with me, we'll pray before we sing. Dear Lord, we thank you for your wonderful and perfect plan and creation. We thank you that you loved us even before you made us, that you made us in your image so that we could have fellowship with you. And that despite our sin, you loved us so much that you made a way for us to be eternally saved. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the perfect truth of your gospel. Help us, Lord, to embrace the truth of your word and please fill us with your spirit and make us more like your son Christ, that our lives would be used for your glory.